Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asked, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Nearly half of Vermont youth have not learned to read on grade level by the time they leave high school. It may come as a surprise to some that Vermont schools have failed to teach the vast majority of students to read well who come from low-income families, are children of color, and or are eligible for special education. In recent years, the proportion of Vermont youth who cannot read proficiently has grown. In October 2019, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the NAEP, published the country's reading results of fourth and eighth graders. Across the nation, outcomes for both age groups had declined slightly since 2017 and had barely moved since the NAEP began testing in 1992. Nearly two-thirds of America's children scored below grade level. Vermont had once been proud of its students' performance on this assessment compared to other states, but now has dropped by five points, receiving the dubious distinction of ranking eighth among states with the steepest declines in student performance. Facts. Vermont scored only marginally better than the nation, with 37% of fourth graders and 40% of eighth graders passing the exam. Not only did the majority fail to read proficiently, the NAEP found that 32% of 4th graders and 23% of 8th graders in Vermont received the lowest score of, quote, below basic, according to the National Center for Education Statistics in 2019. The performance of African-American students in Vermont is similar to the rest of the country. On the Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium, also known as the SBAC exams, an average of 15% fewer black third graders passed the reading exam than their white counterparts. 
This achievement gap grows over time with nearly double the percentage of white students passing the SBAC than African-American students. That's uh, 30% compared to 55% in 2018. Vermont youth from low-income backgrounds perform slightly better than black students, yet have a wider achievement gap with over a quarter fewer passing the reading exam than students who are not low income. That's a 27% point gap. Students eligible for special education perform far worse with only 8% of ninth graders reading on grade level compared to 63% of students who do not receive special education. Now, some Vermonters discount the value of standardized tests, perhaps doubting the nationally normed measures of students' ability. However, the disparities in these results show irrefutable stark differences by race, ethnicity, family income, and special education eligibility. Today, one can meet many Vermont teens and adults under 30 who do not read books outside of school cannot spell many common words, cannot write coherent, grammatically correct sentences, and have not developed handwriting skills beyond the lower elementary level. Secondary school teachers and college faculty describe the steep declines they have seen in students' reading comprehension and writing skills, and often must lower expectations and simply teach less compared to 10 or 20 years ago. Many feel that Vermont youth and adults need not suffer this way. According to the American Federation of Teachers, 40 decades of scientific research demonstrates that 95% of people can become fully literate with the right curriculum and instruction. Experts in literacy contend that when teachers highly trained in structured language provide instruction that is direct, explicit, systematic, cumulative, and diagnostic from oral communication and sound letter correspondence to word origins and comprehension beginning no later than kindergarten and continuing into middle and high school. Nearly every child can read and write with fluency, accuracy, and joy. Vermont is already well positioned to move forward in teaching every student to become fully literate. It is written in Vermont state law, the personal and economic cost of reading failure are enormous, both while the student remains in school and long afterward. The law states that all students need to receive systematic reading instruction in the early grades from a teacher who is skilled in teaching reading through a variety of instructional strategies that take into account the different learning styles and language backgrounds of the students. The law includes that a public school that offers instruction in grades one, two, or three shall provide highly effective research-based reading instruction to all students. This week on Back to Freedom School, our special host, Brittany Lovejoy, sits down with Marilyn Kane Stratton and Dr. Kelly Salmon Hurley to discuss their perspectives on some of the literacy challenges many of our schools were facing before the current global pandemic, and also explore some of the possibilities for achieving equity in accessing quality instruction and curriculum. 
Thank you for listening. Would you state your name and what you do and where you live? Mary Lynn Stratton. I am a clinical research oncology nurse. I currently live in Massachusetts. I just relocated here about three weeks ago from Vermont. In remote learning, do you feel like your child learned more about the same or less than they were in school? I feel like my daughter's, or at least my nine-year-old, learned more. Uh, I took the opportunity those two weeks that we were completely shut down to utilize all those great resources that were out there for parents, uh, including out school. I put her in some fun classes that she liked, Harry Potter, et cetera, and then I put her in a, a OG course. Also, at that time, I realized that if my child was going to have any chance, I needed to hire an, a private tutor. And I knew that I could get one remote. I had access to some down in Massachusetts. So the day that school was dismissed was the day that Ren started private tutoring. Um, we also utilized a lot of the museum, um, virtual exams, et cetera. And the kids had so much fun. We did science and they said, wow, we don't really do science much. And we did a lot of history. Um, Ren, my nine-year-old, realized she doesn't do a lot of history in school. So we did do the curriculum that the school provided, but as that started to get brought on, it became more and more stressful for Ren. The school was pretty good about saying, like, let's just have her do the core basics that she needs to do. Um, and then I supplemented with fun projects when I could. Our nanny, we had to hire a full-time nanny because my husband and I were both essential. Um, so Zoe was also great at coming up with great learning projects for them. That's great. Can you tell us more about your daughter? She's in, is she in special education? Yep. So Ren is nine years old and she got into the special education system in second grade on a math IEP. I had requested, I had tried to request eval in the first grade and they told me, no, she's too young, et cetera. The same thing everyone hears. And then in the second grade, right at the beginning of the year, I watched my then four-year-old daughter like seamlessly execute our morning routine and Ren just couldn't, and she couldn't get out of her own way. So I, I called into work that day. I took the day off. I went to her teacher and I said, I'm done. This eval is happening and I'm sending an email today. I'm not sending it just to you. I'm sending it to um, the principal. And that's what I did. And she had a pretty thorough evaluation, I will say, compared to now. What I've seen for reading, writing, math, and I can't remember if we did ADHD, but we did some executive functioning. And it did show up that she had some um, deficits in some working memory, math, but she didn't qualify for literacy. So I had to request an independent evaluation through the Stern Center. They, at that point, I should back up, it, it got a little contentious. And the special ed director for the district put herself as my LEA on our team. I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that I was on the school board or not. I'm not sure. But I also used a lot of great paper trails. So maybe that was why. I don't know. But I did get the eval from the Stern Center. The Stern Center evaluator 
specifically was looking for dyslexia because that was my concern. And that was pretty clear what the data showed. And the school said that, you know, no, we, we don't see a, a learning disability in, in reading at all. Her fluency was 14. Her subtests were all over the place, some very low, some high. Her IQ is good. Um, so she did get a diagnosis of dyslexia finally, and that was September of the third grade. The Stern Center evaluator did as best of a job that she could advocating for Wren within her uh, report. And I knew enough that I could pay for the evaluator's travel, that one hour of the time billed to the school was going over the report. So I emailed the special ed director who said, sure, you can pay for her. She can come if you want to go over it. And she tried as much as she could in there to advocate for, for Ren as well and tried to even work within the systems that the school knew. In the end, it it worked enough that we were able to get Ren on an IEP for her dyslexia. I pushed for them to use the word dyslexia using the federal guidelines in her IEP. Um, I had to, I think ultimately, honestly, what ended up getting her on the IEP, I don't know, but I emailed the AOE to ask them because they were trying to say that she didn't qualify still. Uh, they couldn't use the data. And, you know, the AOP, a AOE, as well as advocates I had used, parent advocates said, she doesn't need to qualify. She's already on an IEP. She, there's a need here. There's, this is easy. So for December 2019, she started her reading. It was 30 minutes, three times a week of foundations and two days, 30 minutes a week of SLP. And that was my daughter's IEP for what someone, the highest of the highest person at the Stern Center said was one of the most complicated cases she's ever, the Stern Center has ever identified. And that was my daughter's IEP. Special education is defined as specially designed instruction at no cost to the parents to meet the unique needs of a child with a disability. What has special education cost you and your family? Monetarily, a lot. I did end up hiring a lawyer who was working with me in the background to make sure I got the data that I needed. Um, I had to have Ren screened for central auditory processing disorder, which, you know, took some time. I've probably spent, and then our, our, when I finally bit the bullet in remote learning and hired a tutor, it's probably cost me about $10,000. And I haven't been doing this very long. But emotionally, for my daughter, and my youngest daughter, it's cost a lot. I've spent a lot of time on trying to advocate not only for my child, but for everyone's children. I was on the school board before this happened, but I stayed on the school board when our district merged into a, from a supervisor union to a district because I didn't want any child who is in a special education system's voice to get lost. And I work full time. So I was probably spending you know, an additional 40 hours of meetings on the school board or at the state house when, I, when we were working to pass a dyslexia bill on the special education advisory council. In the end, it's cost my daughters being 
pulled from not only their school, but Vermont. We left. We, we left after, after COVID and seeing that Ren really connected with her private tutor and said, why don't all the teachers know how to teach me like this? I was able to start the conversation with her that, well, they could, but they have to know how. And in Massachusetts, most of the teachers know how Ren. And that was quite a conversation for months and months. We also saw that socially, Ren is one of the most social children in her grade. She's friends with everyone. I can't even keep up with her social calendar. But at a cost, she has really low confidence. And so she struggles to get, uh, not get along with her friends, but navigate social systems and social interactions when she's playing with more than one person. She often feels left out or that people are intentionally trying to hurt her feelings. She's super sensitive and very emotional and very aware of her surroundings. She also really struggled with her relationship with her sister. So I was worried at the beginning of remote learning that that would continue, but it didn't. Their relationship just thrived. So her therapist was the one that said, I didn't realize how much school affected her. I mean, I knew enough that I could write you a letter, but, but now I really know. And I would never tell anyone to leave, but you've been talking about it. And I think that Ren will do much better than you think she will socially. She's fine. She's socially apt. You should go. You should move. At that point, we had also been working with, again, our lawyer, Melissa King, who runs a learning center, um, who is going to do some private testing on Ren to just show some progress monitoring. And Melissa said to me, Greg and I can get her to the Stern Center. That's fine, Mary Lynn. And she'll be fine. She'll do that. And I haven't even met your daughter yet, but I feel like I know you and your family so well. And I would never tell anyone what to do, but you're talking about Massachusetts. And if you, if you go there, like I've seen other families leave the state and go where they have these language-based programs, or they just have a good setup for special education that our children see that they can really fit in and that they are not alone in this. They just have all thrived. I haven't heard back from a family that hasn't done well. And it was those two that just reaffirmed to me that we, we need to go. And we're lucky that we have the resources. So we left, uh, we left everything. We came to an epicenter in the middle of COVID. We left, you know, safe Vermont. That is the only green state currently in the country. I'm a nurse. I'll have to work throughout all of this. Granted, I don't have direct care with COVID patients, but the chances of me coming into contact with someone with COVID, and we had to move to a townhouse because in two weeks, there wasn't anything to do but move to somewhere. So we're in a community. Uh, the chances of, of me or anyone getting COVID is really high, but the risk benefit of health and the social emotional and having my daughter now going into fourth grade lose that traction. We all know what happens in fourth grade. We know, we know after third grade what the statistics are for Ren. So I'm nervous about Ren and where she'll always be, but I also have a six-year-old that I knew I was going to have to do this fight again, and I just couldn't do it. So Craig and I, without hesitation, left the state and pretty much, you know, our entire life as we, as we knew it and wanted it. 
just to be able to access an education for our children. That's, that's heartbreaking. It is. And, it, and they're heartbroken. I mean, I think the saving grace down here is that my family's here, my best friend's in the town next door. So we've been able to give, give them opportunities to, to be busy as much as we can. But I mean, Ren, I heard Ren upstairs yesterday crying uh, to herself and saying, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Just hold it together. Just hold it together. We can do this. It was, she was trying, she's trying so hard to give herself some pep talks and some tools. And, but what, what does making friends in the setting of COVID look like for her this year? You know, this was such a huge risk as a parent to take, but I mean, the reading, the, the level of reading and writing goals and, and spelling. I mean, she doesn't even have a spelling goal on her IEP. It's just, it's heartbreaking. The whole situation is heartbreaking. How is reading taught in most Vermont schools? What's working well and what's not working well? It's funny. I had to have an exit interview with my superintendent and he asked me what was working good in our curriculum. And I laughed and said nothing at the elementary level. Sorry, but nothing. And that's how I feel, especially about reading. I mean, it's 100% balanced literacy. And when you don't know, you know, when you don't know or you don't have to deal with what we as parents have to deal with, balanced literacy seems perfect, right? Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't it? But then you realize that using a three cueing is an awful way to teach a child. My six-year-old, who I know, I know she's dyslexic, um, she had a picture in her bedroom and said, mommy, look, I can read, I can read. It was a picture of Anna and Elsa. And she said, that says frozen. It said best friends, six years old. She couldn't even tell that it was two words and that the letters didn't even correspond. So that's what our children are reading, reading like in not only Vermont, I will give them some credit in all across the country, but at least here they have a dyslexia screener. I spoke to, I interviewed many schools and I made sure that the reading curriculum was what I based my decision on because of Mela, not so much Ren. You know, Ren's already half in the door for anything and I've learned how to advocate for her a little bit more. It's how do I get Mela a good reading curriculum? So she actually will get phonemic awareness and phonics and phonological awareness and the teachers here know the difference of what those words mean. She'll learn how to sound out her words and how to break them down. Um, and that's what good readers do. They don't look at the pictures. They look at the word and they sound out the letters. As a previous school board member, what do you feel you did or could have done to help students? I struggled with being on the school board when this first started for a while. And I was really, I'm, I'm usually very vocal, but I was very quiet. I didn't know at what point the special ed director would push to have me recuse myself. So that was a really big internal struggle for about a year. I almost um, quit <clears throat> when my term was up and was asked by many school board members to stay on. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was the closest thing on that board to, to anyone that has ever dealt with inequity. And I mean, really, that's a shame because I come from not privileged, but, you know, Craig and I don't have to worry about when food's coming on our table or 
um, our jobs or, you know, anything like that. They're, we're white, you know, so we don't have a race inequity. We don't have any socioeconomic barriers, so to speak. And I was the biggest voice on there that had to do with equity. I mean, it was just really eye-opening for me. So that's why I stayed on. And I just called attention to everything that we talked about. I called attention to, well, what about this, what about this subset of kids? When we looked at our data and someone said, we're doing really well in literacy. Sure, we were doing over, not over what most of the schools in the state were, but the free and reduced lunch and the IEP population had made zero progress over years. And that was sitting in front of our faces. And yet we had people saying, oh, we're doing pretty good. So it was really just awful. And me constantly just finally speaking up. And most of it, honestly, I pushed for the literacy curriculum because that's the start, right? Like that if all of our children can access a good literacy curriculum, then it's only the very, very small population of the dyslexic children that are going to need extra, extra, very specific and explicit instruction. But if we have a good literacy curriculum in Vermont, then you are going to be able to bring all of those children up to a level where every child deserves to be. So that's really what I always focused on. When I left, I didn't make a big deal I just, at that point, had pushed to bring the Education Quality Committee back, and we did, and just said that, please don't ignore the literacy curriculum. You need to look at it, because if you don't, you're going to continue to fail all of our children. And that was kind of my parting words. What else would you like Vermonters to know about literacy and education in our state? I was able to have my third grader retained this year because not only because of the little special education intervention that she got, but also just our curriculum is a little bit, it's, it's a bit behind where Massachusetts is, but more so that they're used to parents like me or parents like us that fight and fight and fight down here. You know, we're not branded in this bad or harsh light that I've been branded, at least in my school district. But keep fighting, especially at the state level, fight together because um, I think that Vermont did some good work trying to get the Senate and House Ed Committees to see the light. We're now one of, what, six, five or six states that don't have a dyslexia bill, but it's a far way. And that you guys that continue to work for that, we all need to band together a little bit more and, and fix fix our system of literacy in Vermont for all children, all children. This spring, Vermont Governor Phil Scott said, I believe it is possible for Vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path toward having the very best education system in the country and ultimately in the world. How far away is Vermont from this vision? Oh, light years. I mean, I, I wasn't very active when Act 46 happened with like, you know, the, the merging of districts, but I was not for it. But my view of local control has changed drastically going through what I've gone through. And if the Agency of Education and the State Board of Education and the governor worked harder to really have more say over what our curriculum is 
And I'm not saying dictated. I'm just saying strong guidance. Um, but as we've seen, you know, sitting in the House and Senate Ed Committee, I'm not sure that Vermont's going to ever get there. You know, they just, they touted local control, local control. And in the shadow of Act 46, I don't know how much they're willing to push for this. And especially when it's, you know, four to six people sitting in those committee rooms testifying, and then 26 of us testified on dyslexia specifically, and the outcome wasn't very any different from where we started. I'm concerned, which is why I left, quite honestly. I mean, Massachusetts just came out with an amazing reading instruction, and it's one step away from a mandate, you know, like Arkansas has. It's Strong guidance ties to good funding. But I think that the point of that is that there's already been so much lobbying and activism years before that with decoding dyslexia mass that the path has already been paved for this reading, this reading instruction in Massachusetts. Vermont is light years away from that. I mean, light years. So I'd love to see it happen and I'd love to be able to come back there someday. But right now, there's no way that I could. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I just want to thank you for your time and letting my voice be heard. You know, I think, I always think, wow, this is crazy that this is happening. But in reality, it's happened to all of us. I mean, I'm not sure how different my story is from anyone else's. The saddest part about my story is that we have the means and just the kind of enough is enough to, to leave Vermont. But what about all these families that don't have the means or don't know, don't know that their children are not getting adequate instruction or don't even know that they were evaluated properly? It's horrifying. And we don't have enough parent advocates or access to lawyers or access to a good network in Vermont. And so I hope that in hearing our stories and how they're all the same really wakes not only parents up to say I need to fight more and how do I do this because they're all afraid and they're or they don't know or they're afraid of retaliation or people hating them but I hope the educators hear this I hope that the administrators hear this and think wow but in reality honestly Brittany I feel like they're just going to be like oh there's that same group of parents saying the same thing blah 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 I hope that we I hope that we are able to reach an audience that can help to activate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for your time. Good morning. Would you please state your name and um, who you are and what you do? Kelly Sandman Hurley, and I am the co-founder of the Dyslexia Training Institute. We often hear about students in school or graduating who have not learned to read or write well. Why is this happening? So students who don't learn to read and write well, um, can, this can happen for several different reasons. Um, if it's dyslexia, it can happen obviously because they have dyslexia. Um, the main reason is that they're not being identified early or, or at all, and they're not getting the appropriate intervention. So the idea of waiting for a student to learn to read because they're just behind or they just need a little bit more time doesn't really work for somebody who has dyslexia. So the longer we go, the, the, not the worse it will get, but um, it won't go away. They'll continue to have dyslexia. What happens to students when they fall behind in learning to read, um, including middle and high schoolers, and, and then as they go off to college or start working? 
So this kind of goes on with that last question, but one of the things that we forget is that students with dyslexia become, or kids with dyslexia become adults with dyslexia. So the, the longer they stay in school struggling, they know they're in school struggling. They know that they are not reading as well as their peers or spelling as well as their peers when they also know that they are as smart as their peers. So they're getting that frustration every single year that they don't do well. Every time they get an intervention from a teacher and they don't do well in that intervention, they know they're not doing well in that intervention. We call them poor responders, which I can't stand because it's not that they're poor responders, it's that the intervention is poor. So it's not that the kid is not responding, it's that the intervention is not responding to the kid. So, and then we have to, you know, really realize that this takes a really huge social emotional toll on kids, especially those kids who don't have um, a lot of parent support and a lot of parent resources or an advocate. So those kids who are kind of struggling through school on their own, um, for whatever reason, I'm not making any judgment on anybody, but there's a lot of different reasons kids don't have advocacy or parents who are super involved. But those kids are the ones that I really worry about because they are the ones who aren't getting that positive message at home that they're trying. Um, and so they internalize all of that and take that with them through adulthood. So it's, it's you know, we, we need to take it a little bit more seriously, I think, than we do in the education system. And um, when kids are failing, they know they're failing. And it is, and, and one word that the adults use who I've been interviewing is traumatizing. School is very traumatizing for kids who struggle. What do you recommend for struggling students? So the very first thing, so I've changed a lot since I've done a lot of interviews with adults. The very first thing that you need to do is acknowledge it and acknowledge their effort, acknowledge their motivation, acknowledge their intelligence, talk to them about why they're struggling. So what a lot of people tell me is that no one ever told them why they were getting the intervention or what they were doing in the intervention or um, how long it was going to be or anything like that. No one ever asked them if the intervention was working. So talk to them. Don't just sit down and start an intervention. Take like two to three sessions to just talk to them about what dyslexia is, what they think about it, how they're feeling, um, how they're feeling towards you. So I'll just tell one short little story. I had a student who he's, he's profoundly dyslexic. And I remember the very first day he sat down, he was like 11 or 12. And I looked at him and I go, so you just think I'm another teacher in a long line of teachers who thinks she can help you, right? And he just looked at me like, I can't believe you just said that because that's exactly what I'm thinking. And we just talked. So you just need to do that first because um, they're just, they, they get it. They understand what's happening and they're looking at you thinking, this is just another thing I'm not going to do well. So talk to them. It's a long-winded answer, sorry. It's a great answer, great answer. What about the parents or adults who, who are struggling readers? It is, is it too late? No. So I worked in adult literacy for 12 years at the San Diego Public Library. So I worked with adults from 18 years to 100, well not 100, 18 years to like 90 years old. It's never too late, ever too late to come and learn how to read and spell. Obviously it gets harder the older that you get, but it's never too late. And um, what adults really focus on a lot, if we're talking about adults who want to improve their literacy for work issues or college issues, the accommodations are huge. And a lot of them don't know that they can have those accommodations. So that's really important as well, but never too late. That's great. And uh, you said it gets harder the older you get. Um, what about middle schoolers and high schoolers? I notice a lot of, uh, there's a lot of intervention for high school students um, still who, who haven't learned to read in elementary school. And you said it gets harder. Uh, can you explain that a little? Well, it gets harder for a lot of reasons. So um, scientifically, you, your brain is less plastic the older you get. So it's harder to learn new things. 
as you get older. But like I said earlier, you've also got that social emotional stuff also now involved. So you're in middle and high school, you're a middle schooler. You don't want to be pulled out. You don't want to be different. You don't want anyone and you know to have more time when your classmates don't have more time. You don't want to be the one pulling out your computer when no one else is pulling out their computer. So it's just it's just harder emotionally and socially when you get to those ages, which is why I'm a huge proponent of just uh, making sure that they are really comfortable with their accommodations and that their parents are really comfortable with the accommodations and the teachers are comfortable with the accommodations because that's really what is going to help them through those years. The other thing is that if you have the resources to do it in those years is the outside activities, the sports, the dance, the art, whatever it is, allowing them to be really good at something while they're still struggling in school a little bit. But then again, that goes back to, you know, worrying about the kids who don't have the resources to do all those extracurricular activities, which are not cheap. Why is it important for all the high school teachers to attend attend the meeting for a student like this with a reading disability? So high school is, is interesting because high school teachers are content area teachers. So they're not trained in reading necessarily unless they necessarily unless they used to be like an elementary school teacher. So they have less training in this area. So in a high school IEP meeting or school meeting, the student should be there. So if the student is there and all of the teachers are there, this is the student's opportunity to educate each and every single teacher, even if it's the PE teacher. So they all need to understand where maybe there's some behavior issues, but when, when do those behavior issues happen? Do they happen when they're about to read out loud? Do they happen when they you know, have to share their writing with somebody? You know, so it's important for them to understand the student no matter what subject it is and understand that just because you're in high school doesn't mean you no longer have a reading issue. Thank you. This is wonderful. You, you are the expert. Oh. So your area of expertise is dyslexia. Why is it important for students and adults um, to have this diagnosis and, and also uh, to know and understand this definition of dyslexia? I should say adults and teachers. So for the, the adults that I have talked to have all said that they all felt dumb or, you know, they, these are their own words that they use, they're dumb or stupid or inadequate until they got that diagnosis. And then that diagnosis was like, oh, I'm not dumb, this is what it is. The problem is a lot of times people will get the diagnosis and then someone will say, okay, you have dyslexia, but then they stop there and no one ever really says, this is what it is and this is why you're struggling and this is what we're going to do. So my um, colleague, my, my uh, business partner, Tracy, developed a what is dyslexia class for kids. It's just like a one hour class where they can come and learn about dyslexia and they love it. So, you know, it's really important that we talk, like I said earlier, that we talk to them about it. Um, so don't just give them a diagnosis and a label and move on. Um, make sure you're talking about what it is and what that means. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that the label means a lot to them. It helps them really stop blaming themselves for things that they think they're doing wrong. A year and a half ago, my daughter was taken off of her 504 and the school psychologist and the director of special education said that she no longer has dyslexia. Um, does dyslexia go away? And are, is the school qualified to make a determination like that? So no, dyslexia never goes away. You're born with it, you die with it. It can change over the lifespan. So the symptoms of it, the severity of it can change for uh, a lot of different reasons. Maybe the student got an intervention. Maybe the student is not profoundly dyslexic, but moderately dyslexic and has been able to, over time, improve their reading and spelling. However, 
they always, most of them will always need accommodations, especially when you're getting to middle school and high school when the reading and writing become more laborious, there's a lot more reading and writing. That's when they're really gonna need their accommodations. So no, you never get rid of dyslexia. Your symptoms can improve because you have an intervention, but that doesn't mean that you're not still going to read a little bit slower than you, than you need to, or you're not going to have spelling issues or writing issues. Um, as far as a school being able to determine that is a tough question. No, because to determine that you have dyslexia requires an outside diagnosis to begin with. So to determine that you don't have dyslexia would also require an outside diagnosis. So no, they don't. Okay, so so I did go ahead and get that outside diagnosis this summer. And um, she was diagnosed with a specific type of dyslexia. It's called orthographic dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds like it would have to do with spelling. So what is orthographic dyslexia? And what are other types of dyslexia? And, and why does it matter? So this is a little bit controversial, but dyslexia, I, I consider just one dyslexia but you have different variations of it. I don't want to call them different types. So a lot of, um, when, when a lot of people talk about dyslexia, they automatically go to the phonological processing issues. So they'll do like a C-top like or some kind of test that determines if they have poor or below average phonological awareness skills. A lot of students with dyslexia have decent phonological awareness skills, but they're not able to take that strength and apply it to the written language. So that is what orthographic dyslexia is. So they're, they're okay phonologically, they can manipulate the language verbally, but they cannot apply that to language, meaning like if they see the word house in one sentence and they see it three sentences later, it's like they've never seen it before. But if you give them the word house, they can tell you the three different sounds in the word house. So that's, that's the difference, is, is one is just uh, verbal and one is applying that, those skills to the written language. Does that make oh, sense? It, it does make sense. And, I, and she's had an accommodation throughout her academic years that, sh that she doesn't get marked off for spelling errors. Um, what type of spelling instruction could she, have, could she have gotten instruction instead of just an accommodation? Um, and, and why is it important for students to have spelling instruction? So this is my big one. This is where <laughs> a lot of my passion is. Um, so I'm just going to tell a little story to, to make my point is that I'm an advocate and I, I used to go to a lot of IEP meetings um, before all of this happened. And I was sitting in an IEP meeting once with a parent listening to the IEP team tell the parent that spelling was not important. Who really cares? We've got spell check. We've got all this technology now. No one really knows, needs to know how to spell anyway. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, everybody at this table can spell. So all these people who can spell are making a judgment about whether or not it's important for somebody else to be able to spell. So because of my time in adult literacy and the years and years and years I spent with adults, I know how embarrassing not being able to spell is. I know that it does cause a lot of problems in the workplace. It causes a lot of problems a lot of places you wouldn't think. One, one adult told me that she was, she was in a locker room with her soccer team and her adult, her adult, her coach wanted her to write something on the board for her team. I mean, just things like that come up. And if you can't spell, that's really, really embarrassing. Um, it also is really difficult to use a word like enormous or you, you know, you end up using a word like big instead of a word like enormous because you can't spell enormous. So now you're not even really being able to showcase your intellect correctly if you can't spell. 
because you can tell someone just to get their thoughts down all day long. If they can't spell, they're still not gonna be able to get their thoughts down because they're still gonna be thinking about the spelling. Um, so there is a way to teach spelling. Um, you have to understand how the English language actually works in order to be able to do it. So, and it's really, really important because once a student can spell, they can read the word and spell the word, but just because they can read the word doesn't mean they can spell it. So we cannot just brush aside the spelling issue because it does cause a lot of emotional damage to somebody along the, along the line and in their adult years, which goes back to when I started, I said, we forget that kids with, adults and kids with dyslexia become adults with dyslexia. And just thinking that spelling isn't important is really not even thinking about how much we spell as adults and what it can do to somebody. That's my soapbox on spelling. Thank you. <laughs> um, I worked in the public school system and witnessed an educator speak, um, witnessed his teacher uh, speak with her student uh, about a piece he wrote about wolves. After spending weeks on his paper, he asked her, how do you spell wolves? She looked at him and said, you've spelled the word like 14 times and you don't remember how to spell it? Well, he appeared defeated. Why wasn't he able to pull it from memory? Is there something teachers can do to help students who are unable to memorize spelling words? Okay, first of all, don't ever say something like that to a student who's struggling with spelling. He's going to remember that moment for the rest of his life. So we have to be really, really careful about the words we use with a student with dyslexia. Um, the adults I've been interviewing can literally tell me stories like that as if it happened yesterday. So you know, that, that tells you something about how traumatic it is for them to hear things like that. Um, on top of that, it sounded like she was asking him to spell it verbally from memory. So that's different than being able to spell it, you know, to write a word down on paper and look at it and analyze it and decide if that's right or wrong. So she's asking him to do something verbally, which is different than actually producing something on paper. So that's different as well. And so uh, what, was, what was the last part of that? Is there something teachers can do to help students who are unable to memorize spelling words? Oh, stop telling them to memorize spelling words. That's the first thing you can do. <laughs> and have them understand how to spell a word. So a lot of students with dyslexia also have difficulty with um, working memory and working memory with language. So they have these weaknesses in language working memory, and then we tell them to go memorize a list of sight words. It doesn't really make any sense. So instead, we're going to give them a word like wolves and talk about it look for the pattern, look for the spelling, the reason that it's spelled the way it is instead of telling them to memorize it and to stop, absolutely stop telling them the English is crazy because the message you send to somebody when you tell them English is crazy is there's no reason to try. So if you've got someone who's dyslexic who's been trying for eight years in the school system to spell and then you come along or someone comes along and says, oh, English is just crazy. You're just gonna have to memorize all these words. Boom, forget it. Why try? Why should I? I mean, you don't even know how to do it. Why should I? So, you know, you need to, you need to figure out why it's spelled the way it is and then talk to them about have a full on, really exciting, interesting conversation about why that word is spelled the way it is. That's great. How does spelling improve reading? So when you are able to spell a word, it means you understand the underlying structure of the word. If you understand the underlying structure of the word enough to be able to spell it, when you come to it in reading, you're going to be able to read it because you already analyzed it enough to spell it. And so because words in English change their pronunciation based on the morphemes that are attached to it, that's something that you would have studied while you were understanding how to spell the word. And then when you come to reading it, you'll be able to read it that way. Going backing up, uh, what is a morpheme? And also, how does morphology improve reading? So a morpheme is the smallest meaningful unit in a word. 
So if you have the word cat, that's one morpheme. If you have the word cats, that's two morphemes. So C-A-T is one and S is another. So whenever you add a word part to a word and it changes the meaning or it changes the function of the word, then that is what a morpheme does. So it's the smallest meaningful unit of a word. And, uh, and understanding morphemes to be able to read is, is what I was just saying earlier with a word. When you come to a word and reading, and you don't know what it is, if you're able to break it down into those morphemes and you have an understanding of how the morphemes work together to shift pronunciation, then you'll be able to read the word. So I'll give you an example. The word act, A-C-T, the last sound you hear is t, like a, a abbreviated t, and then you add an I-O-N suffix, and I-O-N is the suffix, it's not T-I-O-N. If you add an I-O-N suffix, that T shifts its pronunciation from t to sh. So now you have action. So a student who is studying spelling will understand that when you add an ION to a base that ends with a T, will shift that pronunciation. When they see it in print and they're reading it, they will remember that and read it that way. Uh, what's morphology, which is the study of? The study of the smallest meaningful units of words. I think you just answered the question. That's how morphology improves reading, just to study yeah. those smaller pieces. Okay. Yes. yes. Understand what they mean and how they shift pronunciation when they're put together. Uh, is there a place for morphology, like direct instruction of morphology in math and science class, like outside of reading class? 100%, this is actually a really cool question because if you think about math and somebody's having trouble with, um, oh, what's a good one, like division, you can talk about what division is by breaking the word down and figuring out what all the word parts mean and figure out what division is. Oh, the one, the one example I was trying to think of was denominator. So fractions are really hard for kids, but if you, if you look at the word denominator and then you break it down into what denominator actually means, then they'll have a better understanding of what it is they're doing in math. So we're not just naming what that number is, now we're understanding what that number does in the math problem. So that can work for all math, math um, vocabulary. Just really help them understand what, why all of these different parts of math are labeled the way they are help them understand why they're doing what they're doing. Same with science and history and all of those other things. Just breaking any word down will help them understand. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask this question, even though you've answered this in part, but how does teaching morphology lead to independence and generalization of spelling? I really want to focus on the independence part because I think what happens is students with dyslexia seem to get into the system and they, they get an IEP and then maybe a 504 and then an EST and then they get these accommodations, but they're not necessarily independent. So it's important for students to be independent because they're going 100%. to be adults. Yes. So you know what I always tell my students? When they come in here, I go, look, the goal here is for you never to see me again. That's the goal. And Tracy and I always say, Tracy, my business partner, and I always say, we shouldn't even exist. So the fact that we exist, we, we want our, our business plan is to, not, is to be non-existent. Because what we do should be happening in schools to the point that the kids can be independent and then they don't need to come to us later. Or teachers don't need to come to us. So... You know, the understanding the underlying structure of the language by studying the morphology of it and the etymology of it and the phonology of it will help them be able to break a word down independently and be able to problem solve that word on their own using all the different things that they learn that way. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Thank you. Use a lot of non-script language in that answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so how is teaching morphology different 
than explicit vocabulary um, instruction in the area of like um, considering thinking of reading comprehension. How is the morphology different than vocabulary development? Well, it, it is also vocabulary development. So it's, it's reading and spelling and vocabulary. So obviously we're talking a lot about the meanings of the words while also talking about the spelling and the pronunciation. So it's encompassing all of that, not just what the meaning of the word is. On top of that, when you're accessing a base like in the word circle, like C-I-R-C, you're also accessing all the words that are related to it, like circle, circulation, um, circulate. All of those words are also accessed just from that base when usually in vocabulary, you're just working on one word at a time. Actually, can I add one thing? Yes, please. And for when you're studying morphology as well, um, or not even just morphology, but the, the English language in general, when you're studying that, the, the grammar has to be involved in that. You're not just studying what a, what a word means, but what happens when you add an A-T-E to it? What kind of word does it become? Or if you have a word like produce, where it could be produce or produce, you know, where, where is the schwa in that word and what's happening based on if it's a noun or a verb? So all of that has to be taught at the same time and vocabulary tends to just be meaning-based, but it also has to be form and function. For students with an individualized education plan or an IEP, uh, would you emphasize why spelling should not be grouped within a writing goal? How is it different than writing? Because it's different than writing. <laughs> so writing is getting your thoughts down on paper. It's grammar, it's punctuation, it's organization. Spelling is understanding how English is structured. So if you're encompassing, like I've seen goals where they'll say um, spelling will be accomplished by having them self-edit their work. And like, they can't figure out what, what, that, what, you know, like it doesn't even make sense because most students with dyslexia don't know that they misspelled it because if they knew that they misspelled it, they wouldn't have missed, they would have tried to fix it or they don't know it's misspelled or they do know it's misspelled and they don't know how to fix it. And telling them to go to a dictionary is ridiculous. So I interviewed a guy last week, actually, a really, really accomplished artist. And I asked him about spelling and he said, I can beat spell check every single time. He's like, I can spell it in a way that spell check cannot figure out. So, you know, it needs, spelling is not writing. Spelling is understanding the underlying structure of English and writing is different. Have you seen literacy inequities across race? Well, yes. In, 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 in my, the research that I've been doing for my book, I did um, reach out to the African-American community, the people of color, and I, their stories are definitely different. Um, they seem to have less resources available to them. Um, they're from the parents that I've talked to, they tend to be labeled more as behavior issues rather than um, literacy issues. So, you know, there are behavior issues first, literacy, is, literacy issues second. I did speak to one mom who was um, kind of stating that some moms were not as um, willing to go to IEP meetings because they didn't want to be the quote unquote angry black woman. And so, you know, they're worried that that's going to be the perception. Um, I did speak to a couple inmates. I, w I went to a prison here in California to talk to inmates about dyslexia and how it's affected them. And they talked about having really large families um, that are really struggling. And so they just weren't able to get the resources they needed. One gentleman told me, I'll never ever forget him, that he was literally there because he had dyslexia. and He signed a paper that he thought was buying a car and he was actually stealing a car. So when he drove away, he, he was arrested for stealing a car because he couldn't read what he was signing. And so um, 
he definitely thought he was there just because he had dyslexia. And then when I worked at the adult literacy program in the San Diego Public Library, uh, it was mostly people of color and their experiences were much different, much different. If you could wave a magic wand, what would teaching and learning of literacy look like in schools? It would be filled with people, teachers. First of all, let me say, I love teachers. I think teachers are amazing. Um, we always say this is not a teacher problem. This is a teacher training problem. So I think that if they, if I could go backwards and just have the, the schools of education really focus on helping them understand why people are struggling and give them the tools that they need to help those kids so that they don't get frustrated as well. So it would look like a lot of talking about language and understanding language and a lot of um, early intervention. Uh, what are the barriers to making this a reality? Schools of education, politics, money, curriculum developers, <laughs> everything that's already out there. It's just hard you know, for people to agree and accept what's, what's true. Uh, this spring, our, our governor, uh, Phil Scott, said, I believe it is possible for Vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path toward having the very best education system in the country and ultimately in the world. What would the very best education system need to include? Teachers who are highly trained in the, the structure of English, because that's not just about reading. It's about bringing all of the information into all the other subject areas that they learn and just just that's my, would be my focus in the first three years is just really talking, helping them understand how their language actually works versus memorizing things and kind of teaching things that aren't true. Like, uh, like um, you know, C says, K, like, well, it can say, K, but there's a bunch of other sounds C can make too. So just adjustments in the way that people teach to kids so that they're not constantly misrepresenting how English works. Yeah, so C says, but then there's, there's, there's more to that. And so it doesn't just stop in kindergarten after they learn the basic alphabet. Um, yeah. yeah. So C also says, and. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> That's good. And I do think sometimes it stops and that explicit instruction stops. Uh, it does. Well, Kelly, this was a fabulous interview. Would you like to add anything? No, just, just to, um, reiterate to be really careful about the language we're using and to it's really really detrimental to kids to pull them out if you're not absolutely sure that what you're using is going to work because they know they're being pulled out and every single time you pull them out of a class it hurts them a little bit inside so don't do anything unless you know it's going to work so stop just throwing things at the wall hoping it's going to work be really careful about what you're doing with these kids because these are human beings who know what's going on. And I think it's just really important that the words we're using, the interventions we're using, just kind of throwing things out there, seeing what will work is really, really hard on a kid with dyslexia because the adults use the word trauma a lot. And they remember just sitting there thinking this is well, a complete waste of my time. Yeah. You know, we just need to be careful with what we do because yeah. it affects them. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think our education system takes kids who are reading and write, who just have reading and writing struggles, I don't think they take it seriously enough. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Back to Freedom School, ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing Vermont's education system and some of the opportunities to achieve equity in Vermont's education system. 
I'm your host, Infinite. Thanks again for listening.